The following program is sponsored by the National Prayer Chapel.
on a near-freezing February morning, a man known as Lalo steered his Chevy Avalanche quietly through south-central Virginia's forested hills and farms. He had an 8 a.m. appointment in Axton, tucked in a rural area of roughly 6,500 people near the North Carolina border, where roads are dotted with trailer parks, tiny churches, rusting pickups, and abandoned barns. It's a place where property is cheap, cornfields and cow pastures separate many neighbors, and people tend not to pry into one another's businesses, all of which made it ideal, if unlikely, a way station for the CJNG, the fastest-rising drug cartel, both in Mexico and in America. Their footprint is growing across this nation. This drug cartel operates in a very sophisticated manner. It uses extreme violence in Mexico from beheadings to murdering police. And it is playing an increasing role in filling U.S. demand for super-pure meth, cocaine, heroin, fentanyl, and other drugs. It has been found in at least 35 states. We are losing the drug battle. The church in America has lost its saltiness. We are in trouble. Oh, it looks like everything is kind of fine going along and everybody's concerned about their jobs and their finances and worried about Christmas. Concerned about that vacation, figuring out how to buy that house or how to make the mortgage payment. But while all of that normal stuff, quote unquote, is going on, the American church has lost its saltiness, and we are losing the battle for America. I would say at this point, if God does not intervene in a very significant way, the American church is gone. Buildings are being sold as mosques. We had one sold just here in my neighborhood. A beautiful new building that the Presbyterian Church built and then could not afford it because they did not have the congregation. They believed that if they build it, people would come, but they didn't come. And it was foreclosed and sold to Muslims, and it's now a mosque. What do we do? 
How do we regain our saltiness? I think it's time for us to get quiet and to listen to Jesus. For this is his church. It's not mine. It's not yours. In fact, I don't own anything, and neither do you. You say, oh, I own my car. I own my house. Do you? I don't think so. Everywhere you would go, you see homes and businesses and and land, and it's all supposedly owned by somebody. People lay claim to it, but in fact... It is all owned by Jesus. He is the creator God. He made it all. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It belongs to him. So we may have the illusion of ownership, but we don't own it. And we have gone on in the American church building our great buildings and our great congregations. I have to tell you, I finally have come to a place where I have turned aside from the great churches. I've turned aside from all of the activities. This radio broadcast is the one thing I do. And then I hold a a house church in my home every Sunday from 10 to noon. I've given up on the American church. I've not given up on Jesus, and I never will. But the American church, as it is now functioning in America, has lost its saltiness. There has to be a change, a total change. We've come to a time when we must stop and we must listen to Jesus. We must quiet our hearts before him. This is his church. Now, He spoke about his church in Matthew, the fifth chapter, verse 13. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by men. And the church today is being trampled by men. It is no longer respected in our American culture. It is cast aside as irrelevant. Increasingly, we receive reports of the church dying.
You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? In the context of this passage in Matthew 5, it is very clear that saltiness is associated with righteousness. He's saying, you have lost your righteousness. And if you have lost your righteousness, how can you be made righteous again? That's the contextual meaning. I only know one way to regain that saltiness. And that's to go back to the very beginning of the Beatitudes where it says, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who simply cannot do the job, who cannot be successful in the work of the gospel. Blessed are those who have no idea how to move forward. Blessed are those who give up the human enterprise and seek after Jesus. Blessed are those who are no longer self-dependent. We must come to an end of our programs and our strategies, and we must get quiet before Jesus, and we must hear from him. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn. That is, blessed are those who weep over the condition of the church, over their own condition. For they will be comforted. We must walk through these beatitudes again if we are going to regain our righteousness. You're a light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. Well, the light has gone out in the American church. The institution continues a round of activities. But just look at what's happening in America with the drug trade and the opiates. People are turning to darkness, not to not to the light, because the light is gone out of the church. Do you hear me? We recognize this at the National Prayer Chapel, and part of what we're doing is getting very quiet before God. And we're crying out to Him, There has to be a change. Verse 17 is where we pick up this study that I've been sharing with you of the Sermon on the Mount. Listen to this. This is Jesus speaking. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter nor the least stroke of a pen 
will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Anyone who breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpass that of the Pharisees and of the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. I've been taught that the law was abolished. That Jesus fulfilled it and now I don't have to obey the law. Well, it's true I can't obey the law. That's abundantly clear to any of us who are thoughtful. But it's interesting. If you look with me, keep your finger there in Matthew, but if you go with me, over here to the book of Romans. Let me turn there quickly. Romans, the first chapter, and I could have quoted it for you, but I'd rather turn and read it. I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power, it is the the dunamis, the dynamite, the explosiveness of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. Do you see any explosion in the church today of righteousness? I don't. Do you see any explosion of the power of God? I don't. It is the power, the dynamite of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew and and then for the Gentile. Now listen to this. For in the gospel... A righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. He's saying there is a righteousness that is available to us that does not come via the law. Now it's very clear. Jesus is the end of the law for righteousness, Romans 10.4. The Christian is to be led by the Spirit, and if he is led by the Spirit, he does not walk under the law. Sin could not be removed under the law, Hebrews 10.4 and Hebrews 10, verse 11. But now, under grace... Sin is removed and the believer cleansed because of the superiority of the blood of Jesus. Jesus saves completely, Hebrews seven twenty four and 25. So, the law was just a guide to send us to Jesus, Galatians three twenty four. Thus the law ended with Jesus. The law ended for the Christian. But that doesn't mean that he continues to walk in sin, because if he continues to walk in sin, he is still under the law. 
The only way you can escape being under the law, according to Romans the sixth chapter, is to die with Christ, to be crucified with Christ. The only way we can regain saltiness in the church is to have a whole people who have turned to Jesus, who have been crucified with him, and who have been made righteous by the blood of Jesus Christ. But the lie of today is that you can't be made righteous. And so the teaching is that Christ came to abolish the law for you and for me without changing us, without making us righteous. It's such a clever lie. Jesus did not come to abolish the law. He came to fulfill the law. And he did so perfectly. And now he wants to fulfill the law perfectly in your life and in my life. For real, not make-believe, not a shell game, not a position that is a false position. Not a position that says, I'm saved by grace. Grace, the blanket covers me and Jesus doesn't see me. He just sees himself. No, he sees you. And he's calling for you to regain your saltiness. A man who says, I am a follower of Jesus and walks in sin has no saltiness. He has no righteousness. Any righteousness the church claims for people today is a make-believe righteousness. So it has no power to heal the sick. It has no power to turn the sinner's heart. It has no convicting power. There's no light on the, on the lampstand. It's dark. The church in America today is walking in darkness. It has to change. I could barely sleep last night. I kept waking up. I was awake, tossing and turning until after 2.30 in the morning. And then I dozed off for a little bit. I finally at 3 got up and prayed for a while. And then I went back and I, I tried to sleep again. I slept a little bit and then I was awakened early at 5. My heart is so upset about this. We're in trouble. And the church isn't able to turn the heart of a drug addict to righteousness. Because the church doesn't have righteousness. We are, as a church in America, living on the revivals of the turn of the century, 1900, early 1900s. We're living on the memories of the past but we don't have the current experience. And so the children of today have no remembrance of holiness because mom and dad don't have holiness. Now, yes, there are a few. I praise God for those of you who are raising your children in the fear of the Lord. I praise God for those of you who have turned off the television and the world, the flesh and the devil, I praise God for those of you who have said, I'm listening to Jesus. 
I'm waiting on him. He says, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now go back with me and just look at the big picture of this Sermon on the Mount. Here we have Jesus, who is God. He is the creator God, and he has come to earth incognito. He is not received, John tells us in the first chapter. He is not received by us. He is turned aside. And he is crucified. It's this Jesus who is God who was raised on the third day and appeared to the disciples and baptized them in the Holy Spirit and they were filled with the power and the presence of God. It's this Jesus. Let's be clear who we are speaking of today. We are speaking of the actual creator and ruler of the universe, the Almighty. And he sits down at the beginning of his ministry on a beautiful hillside. And now he wants to teach them what he's about. He does not give them a doctrinal summary. He does not give them intellectual information. He says to them, how blessed if you can do nothing to save yourself and you know that. How blessed are the poor in spirit. And then he gives me a stair-step example, one by one by one, for how to enter into his kingdom. And now that we're righteous through confession of sin, through honest repentance and sorrow that we have so hurt our Lord and we have hurt others. And we come into that place of the comfort of God. We've hungered and thirsted after righteousness and we have been made righteous by grace. We've been given a pure heart by grace. There are three aspects to this righteousness we learn in chapter 5. The first is to be merciful. The second is to be pure in heart. And the third is to be a peacemaker. We would not have expected Jesus to lecture on these issues. He is the God of the universe. But this is what he says righteousness is comprised of. It is not doctrinal purity, even though doctrines are very important. What concerns him is a human being who's willing to show mercy to another, who's willing to allow the Holy Spirit to come in and give him a pure heart, where all sin is removed. That's what Jesus is concerned about and then 
peacemakers, those who will come and be fishers of men, who will make peace between people who are wicked sinners and the Father, who will access the blood of Jesus and be transformed into new creatures. This is the heart of Jesus. And now he's going to begin speaking very specifically. He said, look, the Pharisees, they're not going to make it. It was the Pharisees who crucified him. It was the Pharisees who were so angry with Jesus that they turned aside and they crucified him. And it will be the Pharisees who hear this broadcast and become angry about it. So if you're angry about this broadcast, don't bother contacting me. I'll know if you do in your anger that you are one of the Pharisees. But listen, he's going to walk down now that path where he shows us how our righteousness must be greater than that of the Pharisees. The Pharisees clean the outside of the bowl. They scrub it clean so they can go into church on Sunday morning and they can have their their clothes the way they want them. They can look like they want to look. They can go through the rituals and they can walk out and they can go sit and drink the world in. No righteousness, no power. They can go make disciples who are twice the sons of hell that they are. No righteousness, no mercy, no purity of heart. You've heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not murder. This is the first thing he wants to talk about in terms of, okay, your righteousness must exceed that of your of your scribes and Pharisees. What's he want to talk about that will increase our righteousness? If anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to his brother, Rotka, which is a term of contempt, of saying you are stupid, dumb, is answerable to the Sanhedrin. But anyone who says you fool, you're not worth saving, you're scum, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and then remember that your brother has something against you because of how you've treated him, the names you've called him, the insult you've paid him, the wrongs you've done to him, the way you've stolen from him or extorted from him, the way you have the way you have treated his love. It's the strangest thing to me. I've had people in my life And the more I showed them courtesy and kindness and love in exact proportion to my demonstrating that wonderful gift of mercy, they have responded 
with hatred. And it's broken my heart. The more I loved them, the more they hated me. The more I approached them with resolution, the more they hated me. I understand. He's saying, look, if you have been one of those haters, go and be reconciled to your brother. Then come and offer your gift to me. In other words, don't pretend that you are righteous when you have bitterness in your heart. That's Jesus' first concern. The King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. He is saying, look, number one issue, if you want to have righteousness in your life, you're going to have to deal with your bitter anger and hatred toward another human being. You're going to have to deal with what you've stolen from them. You're going to have to make restitution to them. Or you are not mine. And you have no more righteousness than the scribes and the Pharisees. Well, the scribes and the Pharisees claim to be somebody. They claim to be a follower of Jesus. No, of Judaism. (laughs) Today they claim to be followers of Jesus, but they're still Pharisees. I went with another person to have lunch. And as we sat at lunch, waiting on the waiter, the owner of the restaurant came to me and greeted me. He's a friend, a new believer. And he said, I want you to order whatever you'd like, the both of you off the menu and it's a gift from me. So very graciously, he insisted that he pay for our lunch. And I mean, he brought us an incredible lunch. A very expensive lunch. And then he came and sat down at the table, and the person who was with me said to him, I see on your counter that you have beer. Do you sell beer? He said, yes. My partner insisted that we have beer. And this person said to him, God will not bless your restaurant until you get rid of that beer. He said, I I can't. I'm in partnership. And my partner insists that we carry it. It's a part of our profit center. And this person said, no, you have to get rid of it. God won't bless you with that beer. I was embarrassed. I wanted to crawl under the table. I was a Pharisee speaking. After this person had graciously provided a lunch, and we were sitting there eating it, this other person began to judge the owner of that restaurant. Now, do I approve of beer? No, I don't drink beer. I don't drink alcohol of any kind. Do I believe that in Scripture there's any allowance for drinking alcohol? Well, that's very debatable. 
There are some who say yes and some who say no. I choose not to drink alcohol because I need my full range of senses about me. So I've never been drunk. I have left alcohol alone, and I recommend you do the same. But was it helpful to that person's spiritual journey to be condemned that day in front of me? I was embarrassed. Other times I've been with people who have been interested in Jesus, who've been living with another person and they're not married. And they've been told, you must leave that relationship right now. Well, no, that's not that's not how we go about this. We first come to Jesus and we desire him. And then the Holy Spirit moves and he says, clean up this marriage situation. Either marry her or leave her. But don't continue walking in sin with me. I want to make you righteous. Do I approve of a couple living together and not being married? Of course not. But that's not the first thing I'm going to talk with them about. I'm going to call them to follow Jesus. And then as the Holy Spirit moves and opens the way, he'll tell them what he wants them to do. And if he wants me to say something, he'll tell me when and how, but it will be with love and compassion and mercy not with judgment, not with harshness. Do you hear what I'm saying to you? The first issue that Jesus wants to deal with is this issue of murdering your brother or your sister with angry judgments, with words that show contempt, with words that are not of kindness. No, this is such a simple thing. But when we think we're right, and when we think others are wrong, and our sharp tongue begins to fold out its words, we have no righteousness. And where there's no righteousness, we're no longer the salt of the earth. We don't flavor. We don't increase the value of what they have by angry words. Now, you may not scream at someone to be angry. You may just be flat out judgmental. You may be condemning. All of that is a part of murdering another person. So the King of kings and the Lord of lords comes to us, sits on a mountain hillside to begin to teach us what he is like. And his first concern as he begins to talk to us about righteousness is that we stop hating. 
we stop condemning. We stop judgments. We stop accusations. Instead, we repent of being a Pharisee, of being hard-hearted. Have you been hard-hearted? Have you been judgmental? Have you been a Pharisee? Have you called someone stupid? Even in your spirit, have you called someone stupid? Have you said this person is of no value? We might as well just not talk to them. Have you hurt other people with your words? Have you hurt their hearts with your judgments? Then you need righteousness. And to get that righteousness, you're going to have to repent. You're going to have to go back and get on your face before God. And you're going to have to repent. And then you're going to have to go to that person that you wronged and that you hurt. And you're going to have to confess your wrong. And you're going to have to turn to Jesus. You're going to have to get quiet before him and you're going to have to listen to him. And he will teach you the way of righteousness. He says, settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you're still with him on the way or he may hand you over to the judge and the judge may hand you over to the officer and you may be thrown into prison. I tell you the truth, you will not get out until you've paid the last penny. He's saying, look, don't enter into disputes. Don't engage in disputes. Don't fight with people. Don't fight with your family. There are people who are very angry with me because of how I walk and how I live. And when they last spoke to me, they were full of angry judgments. I didn't harm them. I didn't do anything except love them. They didn't like who I was or who I am. That's okay. But I'm not going to continue fighting with them. I'm not going to continue walking in ways that are of darkness with them by contending with them. Listen. Settle matters quickly with your adversary. Even if it costs you a great deal, settle with your adversary. And then he begins to speak about his second great concern. You've heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. 
I tell you, anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. It's been said if anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for marital unfaithfulness, causes her to become an adulteress. And anyone who marries the divorced woman commits adultery. Wow. Remember, I identified those three aspects of righteousness, everything that we're going to talk about today and forward will fit under one of those headings. In the fifth chapter, in the seventh verse, mercy is number one sign of righteousness. Mercy is righteousness. Pure in heart. What I just shared with you about lust is about pure in heart. Mercy is about not being angry with somebody, not judging them, not casting aspersions and accusations. I perhaps shouldn't say this, but I will. I have been hurt more in my life as a pastor, and I've been a pastor now for 50 years, over 50. I have been hurt far more by Christians than I have by pagans. Why? Because somehow Christians seem to think that righteousness is judgment. Accusation. Oh, you're a sinner. Look what you've done. Oh, my. Look what you've done. And instead of coming and walking with me when they grow angry like that they walk away I'm done with you I have thrown you away they have said you're a fool and I don't associate with fools I've never been told that by a pagan but I have been told that by Christians, so-called Pharisees. Where is our, where is our mercy? 
we separate one from another over such childish and foolish things. We separate sometimes over very deep divisions, but not if we're followers of Jesus Christ. In the church, we seem to shoot the wounded, judge them, condemn them, cut them off. So Jesus is saying in this first part, show mercy. In the second part, he's saying, look, I want you to have a pure heart. If your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. This is talking about real righteousness. This is, this is dealing to the very bottom of the human heart. And here Jesus, the Son of God, the King of kings, the Creator God, comes and sits on a mountainside, and what does he want to talk about? He wants to talk about righteousness, real righteousness. And he wants to talk about mercy. He wants to talk about purity of heart. He wants to talk about being peacemakers. I hope as you gather at your Thanksgiving table with friends and relatives that when the topic of politics comes up you will just shut your mouth and not engage don't talk about how you love or how you hate President Trump don't engage in gossip it is wickedness Instead, at the family table, turn the conversation constantly to what you are thankful about what Jesus has done in your heart and and what you're asking him to do in your heart. And if you have wronged family members, make peace with them. If they have condemned you and will not make peace with you, forgive them. Show them mercy. Don't engage in conflict at a Thanksgiving afternoon or table. Don't Walk in the way of darkness this Thanksgiving. Be a testimony that Jesus is who he says he is and that he is enough. I'm going to continue this study in the fifth chapter of Matthew tomorrow. And by the way, we have come to the end of November and if the pledges that have been made come in, and I trust they will, and by the way, just a quick note, the $700 that did not come in last month, 
was covered by a dear brother. And I returned that to him yesterday because the person who had made that $700 pledge, there was a technical error and it was paid and we did now receive it. And I'm very grateful to that dear sister. She is very precious. She is a Christian who walks with Jesus. So thank you, doctor. Just a quick note. We are $1,200 short for the month of November, being able to cover. I'm not going to do an offertory yet. I'm going to trust Jesus to move in your heart. And the pledges, I trust they'll come in. Enrica was here, Perez was here on Sunday in our fellowship with his wife and his son. If you remember, he is the dear brother who was crushed in an accident and desperately needs our financial help. If you would like to help him and you'd rather, instead of going to PayPal, would rather just send a check marked poor fund, I'll know it's for Enrica and I'll give it to him. I'm looking forward to hearing from you. If you would like to give a Thanksgiving offering for this radio broadcast this week, would you please do that? You've been listening to Pilgrim's Progress. I'm Ray Greenley, and I love you with all my heart. God bless you today. In the name of Jesus, I'll talk to you soon. Jesus Christ, our